Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Now we get to dig into the Word. It's Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you would turn in your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, you can use one in the seat back pocket in front of you. And if you actually don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one along with you. As we study uh, Mark's gospel, so thankful for Pastor Jeff filling in for me last week. We're going to pick up where he left off. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to prepare our hearts And I love to hear the sounds of pages turning because we're desperate to hear from you on a 1030 Sunday morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us spiritual insight and wisdom that we would truly make you the one God in our life. And Lord, I pray, would you allow your word to speak to us? In Jesus' name we all said, Amen. amen. I have a question for you, 1030. Have you ever challenged your authority. Wow, how quiet we got. (laughs) Do you remember when you were a kid? Oh, let me just catapult us to adult. How many of us, when we see speed limit 55, it actually says 85? (laughs) Come on. Have you ever... (laughs) I have a few hands. Me. Is anybody watching? Me. Have you ever challenged your authority? Now, I don't know. Some of you don't know this about me. I used to be a teacher in the public high schools. But the high schools that I taught in were disciplinary centers. And so kids that got expelled and they were not 17, the state is mandated to provide school for them even though they were expelled. Because once you turn 17, you can quit school. But up until that time, you really can't. But they got expelled when they were 15 or 16. That was my classroom. I had about 25 expelled kids in my classroom. I had access to security. I had a little radio. And anytime some kind of problem happened in my classroom, I called security, they came on in and helped. Now, you might think that maybe I wasn't a great teacher. I had some rough kids, okay? I had one kid. He was reading a book. He got so mad at what was being read in the book, he picked up his desk and threw it at me. That was my classroom. I had two girls get into a fight. So the one girl picked up a chair. She started swinging the chair at the girl and swung the chair. It lost, got out of her hands and went right through a window, okay? Security. I called security every five minutes. There was a problem in my classroom every five minutes. But one day I was sick. I didn't come to school. So I had a substitute. She was all a four foot eight. She didn't call security once the entire day. Once. The entire day. My kids walked in line to lunch, and they walked in a line back to the classroom. My kids walked to P.E. They actually did P.E. and didn't fight the whole time, and they walked back into the classroom. They were going to fire me because they were so amazed at how well-controlled my classroom was while I was gone until they found this poor woman locked in the closet at 4.30 in the afternoon. 
My classroom locked her in at 8.30, and she was in there till 4.30. She never substituted again. I had a class that constantly challenged authority. They did it publicly, and they did it secretly. And if you do it secretly, it's still challenging authority, even though no one may know that you're doing it. So the question for us today is, publicly or secretly, do we challenge God's authority over our life? Do you hear the question? Do we challenge God's authority over our life? Well, the Pharisees did. So if we challenge, then we could be Pharisaical. Pharisees constantly challenged the authority of Jesus. At first, they wanted to know, where did you get this authority? In other words, who do you think you are, they asked Jesus. Oftentimes, I see this when I'm in the middle of a counseling and someone has done something wrong. I'll say to them something from the Word of God, and they get mad, and they go, who do you think you are? They get mad. They get mad at me, and it's not even me. It's Jesus telling them it's just my voice. And they get mad at me. Who do you think you are? And then they go on my Instagram and post things. Well, guess what? I got rid of Instagram. God bless you. So what Jesus does when they ask this who do you think you are question, he tells them a story. Pastor Jeff taught on it last week. Let's pick it up in verse 10. He says, have you not... Read from the scripture, Mark chapter 12, verse 10. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, you're rejecting me, but I'm the foundation of faith. This was the Lord's doing. God is doing this. Verse 11. And it's marvelous in our eyes. I know you're rejecting me. And I know you're saying, who do you think you are when I'm trying to speak into your life? But I'm the foundation. God is doing something, and you better pay attention because it's going to be marvelous. Well, this bothered them. (laughs) There was no Instagram back then, so what they did was they plotted, how can we destroy him? Take a look. Matthew chapter 22, you'll see it on the screen. Then, after this moment, (laughs) who do you think you are? Oh, then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. They met all night trying to figure out how in the world can we get Jesus? And they came up with three questions. Three questions so that they could confound him and confuse him and make the people turn against him. It's Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Maybe you'll take it down for note. Listen, people question Jesus' authority because of their personal ideologies. It's our first of three. People will question the authority of Jesus in their life because of their personal ideologies. Let's take a look. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Then they sent to him. So they sent, okay? This was a plot. This was a plan. They had three questions. They're getting out to Jesus. So they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and you care about no one, for you don't regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. Here it is. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? (laughs) We got him. 
But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a Daenerys that I may see it. So they brought it. He says to them, What image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Now note, they answer his question. And Jesus answers them and says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. Of course they marveled. The Lord's doing something. And they marveled at him. This was a plan. They sent him. They've come up with a plan. They're going to ask three different questions. Listen, if you won't tell us who made you the boss, if you won't tell us who you think you are, well, we're going to make everyone turn against you. We're going to ask you some questions, and all of the people are going to turn against you. Remember, God is doing something marvelous. He's actually going to turn their questions around on them because he wants to get their attention. Now, paying taxes is a big deal. Amen? Amen? It's a big deal in the 21st century. It was a bigger deal in the first century. This word taxes is actually the word census. Because every year, Caesar would take a census of all the people, and they would all get taxed. And they would have to pay to Rome what they owed Rome. And every year, it reminded the Jews, we are under Roman subjection. We are under Roman subjection. This was a hot topic. And by asking this question, (laughs) if Jesus messed this up, Most of the Jews would turn against Jesus, and now they could get Jesus because the people were on their side. But represented in this group, if you take a look, are the Pharisees, super religious, anti-Rome, and the Herodians, super non-religious, extremely pro-Rome, and political. Inside of these Two groups represents two opposing ideologies. Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You had the religious group, you had the political group, and though they were opposed in their ideologies, there was one ideology that they agreed with, and that's why they came together. You see, Jesus had gone into the temple, and he messed up their business. And they believed something. They believed the more money you had, the more blessed you appeared to be of God. And being religious and being a leader, that was very important in the Jewish world. And Jesus goes into the temple just the day before, and he messes with their business, and he throws everything up, and they lost money. And their ideology was, if you're rich, you're blessed. Let me prove it to you. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he walked away, Peter said, who could be saved? This guy is obviously blessed of God, and now you're saying it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for the camel to go through an eye of a needle. He goes, who can be saved? If this guy who seems so blessed by God can't be saved, then we've got an issue. They believed this. It was false doctrine. They believed the more money you had the more blessed you were of God. And because they shared these ideology, they came together because Jesus is messing with their pocketbook. 
And there's nothing greater. Ah, let me ask you a question. What are the two things that you don't talk about at Thanksgiving dinner? Politics and religion. So who did they bring to Jesus? The religious group and the political group. And it's at Passover, their Thanksgiving. So they thought, we're going to create commotion over politics and religion. And when they came, I love how they come. You are so great. We know that you don't listen to what anyone has to say, and you speak the truth. Let me tell you something about flattery. Her twin sister is hypocrisy. And she ain't too far away. And I love it out in the lobby when people walk up to me. You are the greatest pastor. You're so funny and wonderful. And I just think you're so great. I'm just waiting for Monday morning when the email comes. (laughs) Because I I know some people have been genuine. And you can feel some genuine and authentic encouragement. But when people come with flattery, let me tell you something. Be careful. The twin sister sister hypocrisy is right behind her. Always be a little wary when someone is flattering you. I know it feels good. I know it feels good. But be careful of it and be careful of doing it. Because the email came. Though they came with flattery, here comes the hypocrisy. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's our religious political question at Thanksgiving meal. The match is lit. Gas is on the wood. This was the hot topic of the day. Should we be in subjection to Rome? Well, if Jesus says yes, the people will turn on him. We can get him. But if Jesus says no, Rome will turn on him and we can let Rome get him. This is what they connived all through the night to be able to get Jesus. But Jesus is going to do something marvelous. He goes, listen, why are you testing me? He exposes them in front of the whole crowd. So he asks for a coin. (laughs) They're so excited. Jesus, hook, line, and sinker. He's fallen for it. He's going to go for it. Get the coin. It's probably in one of their pockets. And he pulls the coin out, and he gives them the denarius. And Jesus asks two questions. Whose image is on it, and what does it say? Well, the image, the image was Caesar Tiberius. He owned the coin. And because he owned it, you had to pay him to use it. You had to pay him to use the roads. You had to pay him for protection. You had to pay him for the peace that existed in Rome. And you paid once a year. Now, let me tell you something. I came back from Liberia excited to pay my taxes. Now, I know I complain about the 405 all the time, but at least we have it. I went on a road. And as we were on this road, it was a dirty road in its rainy season, our car went about this deep in mud. I had to get out of the car. I stepped my foot in the mud. I left those shoes in Liberia. No sense to bring them back. Totally destroyed because of rainy season and there's not paved roads. I came back driving on the 405 in LA like, yeah, I love the 405. I'll pay my taxes. Amen? Okay, amen means you agree. 
So you had to pay Rome their taxes. But the inscription, what was written on it was, Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine. Whoa. You see, Tiberius' dad was a guy by the name of Augustus. And Augustus started the Roman Empire. So when he died, the Romans made him a god. In fact, if you go to Israel with us in 2024, you can see an Augustan temple where they worshipped Augustus. And because Tiberius was his son, he was known as the son of God. So when Jesus is holding the coin, he doesn't say, read it and go, Caesar Tiberius. No, he goes, what does it say? He won't even read it because he's the son of God. Imagine how the enemy had Jesus born into a time when the Caesar was known as the Son of God and the true Son of God is there living and breathing amongst the people. So Jesus goes, what does it say? He won't even read it on the coin. They respond and answer, and Jesus responds to them and says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, I know some of you really don't like that Jesus just said that. Because on April 15th, when we find out what we owe, and your pastor says, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Because you know what he's saying? Give Caesar what you owe him. You get to drive on the 405. You, you, you get to call 911. Like, give Caesar what you owe. You have a debt to pay, so go ahead and pay it to Caesar. But then he says this. Render to God the things that are God's. There is the point. He uses their question, turns it on him, and he says, listen, paying taxes is not the issue. You're the issue. Let me let you know. It's Genesis chapter 1. Take a look, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Do you know what's on your life? The stamp of God. Every human being has the stamp of God on them. We are made in the image of God. That is a truth of Scripture. We're made in the image of God. And let me tell you what he stamped on that image. Worship God. Worship God. And those of us that have desired not to worship God, we will worship Maybe we'll worship our money. Maybe we'll worship our girlfriend, our boyfriend. Maybe we'll worship our job. We've been made to worship. His image is, in, uh, is imprinted on us, and he's inscribed on us to worship him. We've been made to worship. But what Jesus does, he avoids their question altogether. He uses their question against them. He turns the issue to deal with the real problem. Because the problem is not paying taxes. You can pay your taxes and worship God. That's not the problem at all. The real problem is they created their own ideology about God. They'd infused it into their religion. They'd infused it into their politics. And what we believe is how we will worship. What we believe is how we will worship in our lives. And they were ignoring what God had inscribed on their hearts to worship him. And they were worshiping power and they were worshiping religion instead of worshiping God. And when God answered him, they're amazed. 
Now, what I love about Jesus' answer, he doesn't offend either side. His answer is so wise that he doesn't offend either side. He doesn't work up the crowd. No, no, he doesn't work up the crowd. He frustrated the enemy by his wisdom. Tower Chapel, let me tell you something. We live in a very divided world, and we would do well to follow the example of Jesus. We live in a very divided world. There are so many ideologies. There are so many political parties. There are so many issues that can create chaos. I'm a Democrat. Well, I'm a Republican. Well, I'm an Independent. (gasps) Pastor Chet, are you going to talk about politics? No, because Jesus doesn't. He takes their political religious question and he turns it into a spiritual issue and he attacks the spiritual issue, not the politics and not the religion. He deals with their hearts. The real problem was that God had inscribed on them to worship and they were choosing not to worship. He was wise in his answer. And maybe if we choose to be wise in our answers, we can minister to both sides, not just one side. Maybe if we have some discernment, we can minister to everyone. We don't need to create enemies. We need to seek and save the lost. We stand for truth by using the wisdom that Jesus used. And we are able with discernment to be able to speak words of wisdom. The issue is not political and the issue is not religion. The issue is what's happening in someone's heart. Because let me tell you something. No politics, no politics will bring morality back to the United States of America, and no religion can bring morality back to the state, back to the United States of America. Jesus Christ can change someone's heart and bring morality back to them. Amen? Don't let ideology divide us. Let it be an opportunity for wisdom. Mark chapter 12. Number two, people question Jesus' authority in their life because of their personal theologies, not just their ideologies. We question the authority of Jesus because of our personal theologies. Take a look at verse 18. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. I told the 8.30 I wasn't going to do it, but I had to. (laughs) I'm actually embarrassed myself that I did it. And they came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses, now that's important. Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And that's very true. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. They picked out a piece of scripture, and now they're asking a question. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he had left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman dies also. Therefore, In the resurrection when they rise, which they didn't believe in, in the resurrection when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. You know what I find amazing? 
People that question the authority of Jesus usually base it on a biased, personal, theological stance. People that question the authority of Jesus. They've developed a theology that makes God fit in their box. So they created a God of their own. They make God fit in their box and just suit their lifestyles. Let me explain. The Sadducees enjoyed wealth and prosperity. And they wanted to live it up in this life. So what they did was they developed a theology, there's no resurrection. And by developing a theology that there's no resurrection, if there's no afterlife, I might as well enjoy my wealth today. All you have to do is follow what Moses said. They didn't believe in what the Pharisees believed. They didn't believe in all the oral traditions and all the legalism and all the law. No, if Moses said it, we'll do it. We'll pick and choose what we're going to do, and we're just going to follow what we pick and choose to do. That's why when they ask Jesus a question, they refer to Moses because they only believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they come with this hypothetical question. But the problem is the question itself is based on a false premise. There is no resurrection. In other words, they built their truth. They built their question on a lie, on a God of their making, on a theology that they developed, not that God explained to them. Hey, church, this is happening all over the church today. Oh, not at Calvary Chapel South Bay. But people are questioning the authority of God. They are questioning true theology to accommodate their personal lifestyle. It's no different than Sadducees. And the problem was that they just picked and choose from Moses' law. Well, I'll take this verse, and I'll take this verse, and I'll take this verse. Well, let me tell you something. You can find a verse to support any lifestyle you want to live. You can see God's a God of love, so because he's so loving, I can do whatever I want. You can pick any verse you want in your flesh and just make it accommodate whatever lifestyle you want to live. So there is no resurrection. They thought they developed a perfect argument, but their argument was based on a lie. But they're about to see something marvelous because Jesus is going to give them truth. So look what he tells them. He tells them, Verse 24, are you not therefore mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God? You're wrong, period. And he goes on and he says this. Look at verse 25 as he further explains. For when they rise from the dead, did you see this? For when they rise from the dead, Jesus isn't worried. He's not in doubt. He's not questioning his own theology. Just because you believe it's true doesn't mean it is. He is not in doubt at all. He communicates with a confidence for when they arise. In other words, just because you don't believe there's a resurrection doesn't make it true. Just because you've come up with this theology to support your lifestyle doesn't mean your theology is correct. Jesus is not concerned about what he believes. He simply says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
and the God of Jacob. Stop there, if you would, for just a moment. Since they held on to the book of Moses, he pulls a passage out of the book of Exodus. And he says, have you guys not read this? The doctrine of the resurrection was right in front of you, but you refused to see it because you preferred to live life the way you wanted to. So when God says something like, be kind one to another, well, God doesn't know how mean she is. We pick and choose what we're going to choose to obey because we develop a theology that he can't be possibly talking to me. And what I love about this, they're so wrong about heaven. Like, they go to Jesus and say, well, whose wife is she? It assumes that they know what heaven's like, but they have no idea what heaven's like because they've never been there. It would be like you explaining the Bahamas and you've never been there as compared to me explaining the Bahamas who was born there. Come on, you're going to say there's, no, there's marriage in heaven? No, marriage is not for heaven, Jesus says. You see, marriage was given so that we wouldn't be alone. But when we get to heaven, there's no need for marriage because we'll never be alone. God is with us, and he will be with us all the time. There's no need for marriage. So he goes, you're mistaken. You don't even know what heaven's like, but I do, and I'm going to tell you about it. You're going to be like the angels. In other words, there's no need for marriage in heaven, but there's need for marriage on earth because we are to produce godly offspring. But when we get to heaven, we'll be eternal. So there will be no need to keep the population going. You have no idea, he tells them, what heaven is anything like. And I love when these people, theologians, get on CNN and start explaining God differently than God explains himself. Who's better to talk about, who's better to explain you, you or somebody else? Amen. I have one person that's listening. God bless you. And he says to him, you don't know the power of God. Look at verse 27. He's not the God of the dead. Just because your life is dead doesn't mean that God is. He says, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. There is a resurrection, period. You are therefore greatly mistaken. You know what he says to him? Just because you don't believe in the resurrection doesn't make your theology correct. God is powerful enough to give us a new body. He's powerful enough to unite our spirit in the resurrection. On Tuesday this past week, while I was in Africa, I got news that a dear friend of mine went home to be with the Lord. I talked to her probably once a week before she died. She it was a major spiritual influence in Andre and I's life. In fact, she spoke into our life and told us to leave Fort Lauderdale and move to California. And God used her testimony even now to be your pastor. She's gone home to be with the Lord. She is absent from the body, but she's present with the Lord. But one day, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ 
will rise first. Our bodies will be restored and renewed to a resurrection body and unite with our spirit. And we're going to have resurrection bodies, like walk through walls kind of experience, like be me up, Scotty. Like we're going to be like Jesus in and out, like the whole deal in a resurrection body. One moment I'm New Zealand, the next moment I'm in Israel. It's going to be resurrection, like whoa-ness, okay? Amen. But as believers, we get a little piece of that resurrection now. It's called the newness of life. We get to experience the power of the resurrection here on earth. Do you remember prior to coming to Christ, you had a potty mouth? Mm -mm. And now when you hear those words, you go, ooh. Do you remember before you came to Christ, You were a smoker. You had like eight packs a day. And then you came to Christ and it's like, wow, I don't need this anymore. I need Jesus. Do you remember before Christ, like you were a drug addict? Do you remember like you were addicted to sex? Do you remember like who you were before Christ? And now all of a sudden, you're married, like you've got kids, you're leading them in Jesus, you volunteer at VBS, and you're like, who is this person? It's called resurrected living. You're experiencing the newness of life. You're proving the fact that there is a resurrection to come. There is a resurrection to come. People who question the resurrection don't know the newness of life. You've got the newness of life. And my question for us today is, do you have the newness of life? What choice are you making in life? Trust me, Jesus is right. He's not worried about his doctrine. He is right. There is going to be a resurrection. Will you be a part of it? Finally, we take a look at the third question. Maybe you'll write this point down. People question the authority of Jesus because of their own personal philosophies. They will question the authority of Jesus because they've developed their own personal philosophies of life. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came and, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving, he's a smart guy, that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? What's the greatest of the commandments? What's the most priority? Or a plot begins to continue to unfold. Now remember, this was a plan. They had planned these three questions. They wanted to embarrass Jesus and turn the people against him. This last guy, (laughs) he looked at the Pharisee and Herodians. Didn't go so well for them. He looked at the Sadducees, and he's like, you guys are really sad, you see. He went down, and he's watching this whole thing, and he sees how they all go down pretty hard because Jesus is so marvelous. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in in our eyes. But this guy, he's a smart guy. You see, he's a Yale guy. He's a Harvard guy. He's a scribe. Now, let me tell you what that means. He's an Ivy Leaguer. It means in the first century, he could read and write. Now, I know in the 21st century, that's not a big deal. But in the first century, to be able to read and write, you could get a job anywhere in the world. In fact, Daniel. Daniel was a scribe. 
He could read and write. He became the second in command in Babylon as a Jewish guy because he could read and write. Scribes, you could get a job. It's like being a nurse. You can get a job anywhere in the world if you were a scribe. But the scribes were well-educated. Scribes, they were the philosophical group. They pondered the law all day long because they could read. And there are 613 laws. And so they thought, how in the world could we help the little people (laughs) who can't read and write, who have no idea what it is to read? How could we help the little people understand? They were the know-it-alls. Do you know anyone like that in your life? They were the know-it-alls. So Jesus... He wants to minister to them. But I need to let you know something about the know-it-alls. They weren't always this way. Ezra. Ezra was a scribe. And Ezra brought religious reform to Israel. He was a scribe. He could read and write, so he read the law. It changed his heart, and then he changed all of Israel when the exiles returned. What happened to the scribes were now... They're the know-it-alls, I'll tell you. Well, I've been coming to this church for 35 years. What's this newfangled pastor going to teach me? (laughs) I've heard every sermon there is to hear. (laughs) Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Joshua. I can just quote him. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gives us. And when you speak it, it's like you're speaking in tongues. You even know your Bible is so marked up. (laughs) Your Bible is so marked up. You know where that scripture is. It's in yellow on the top left-hand side. I don't even need to know. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4. I can just turn there. Boom, there it is. And you want everyone to see how messed up your Bible is. I've been here 35 years. But I got a question. Are you mean? Are you mean? Because knowledge has a way to make people feel like They know it all. Now, if you've been here for 35 years, I love you and I want you to stay. But my point is, we can have all the knowledge in the world. But look what knowledge can do. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul warns of it. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Makes you know it all. But love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, you don't know anything yet. I just put it in Chet English. You've been here 35 years. You're a greeter. Hey, how you doing? We got a smoker. We got a smoker. He has not been redeemed. Doesn't know the new life. We got a smoker sitting on aisle five. We got a boyfriend and a girlfriend. (laughs) Oh, they're living together. They're living together. They're going to sit by me. They're going to sit by me. (laughs) (laughs) 
someone who has been walking with the word for 35 years should be the most loving people on the planet. Because the more you learn about Jesus, the more loving you will be. He came to seek and to save the lost, the smokers, the drug addicts, the people that are living together. And if the church has gone pious, we need to lose our pride and realize we could be the problem. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. And he says in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, would you take a look with me? He responds to them. What's the greatest commandment? Well, the first, the most important commandment is, hear, O Israel, listen up, everybody. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, there's no other God besides God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Hey, Israel, listen up. God is God. He begins his communication the same way Moses began in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And to Israel, God being God meant that they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt. For the Christian, it means we've been delivered from sin and get to walk in the freedom of sin. I don't have to wake up anymore the morning after. I'm free. And if we build our foundation of faith on that, you can't help but love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He set us free. St. Bernard, he says this, the measure of our love to God is to love him without measure. For the immense goodness of God deserves all the love that we can possibly give to him. So he says, you shall love. Did you hear how personal that is? You shall love. God desires a personal relationship with you. It's so personal. That the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation is busy about VBS, busy about going to Peru, busy about going uh, to serve on the streets in L.A., busy about going to Florida where my wife is on a mission trip, busy about all these things. And all of them are good. He doesn't rebuke them. He says, I'm really glad, really thankful for you. Doing a great job. But you forgot me. You forgot your first love. Because I care about a relationship with you. And I want you to love me with all your heart. You're doing it this morning at 10.30. You are proving that he is the center of your desires and wants by choosing to come to church instead of go to the beach on a Sunday morning. You love him with all your heart. Love with all your soul. I'm not going to base my faith on feelings. I'm going to choose to walk by faith like G.J. encouraged us to. Love the Lord with all my mind. When I got saved, I was given the mind of Christ. I begin to think different. And I don't think for myself anymore. I think to honor God with every decision I make. And to love God with all my strength. I'm going to give it everything I've got. And next week, we're going to learn about a widow who gave everything she had and proved this statement to be true. But he didn't end there. He said, we're to love others the same way we love ourselves. Now, you know you love yourself. 
How much time did you put? How much time did you spend putting makeup on? <laughs> Fixing hair, deodorant. What do you wear? The whole deal. Because when I showed up this morning, I want all you guys to know. <laughs> another new shirt. <laughs> Guess what? On sale. And I want you to see, looking fresh and clean, I like myself. Do I like you as much? Because we're commanded in Scripture to love each other the same way that we love ourselves. You see, the problem with the, with the Pharisees, they place so much emphasis on the work of God, not the relationship. And so they believed in the sacrifices. So what Jesus does, he pulls out of Leviticus, the sacrifice book. He pulls out of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself because they omitted what the sacrifices were for. Listen to what God tells them. Listen to what God says in Hosea chapter 6. He speaks to the children of Israel and he says to them, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God. In other words, I want a personal relationship with you more than the burnt offerings. And so the sacrifices was there to put you back in relationship with God. The sacrifices were there to put you back in relationship with others. And let me tell you who got it. His name was Zacchaeus. Do you remember him? Zacchaeus was a... And a wee little man was he... He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to. Some of you need to go to Sunday school. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm going to your house today. He was so overwhelmed that he had a relationship with God. He goes, I am going to give back four times as much to the people that I hurt. Do you know what he was doing? Fulfilling Levitical law. I want to be back in right relationship with people. And God, through the sacrifices, gave the way to be back in relationship. But I need you to see something here. He says the second like it is this. In other words, these commands, love God and love others, it goes hand in hand. You can't raise your hands in the sanctuary and say, I love you, God, and then go out in the parking lot and hate on people as you're leaving. It just doesn't mix. It doesn't match. You can't say you love God and hate people, especially when God says, I so love people that I sent my only son to die for them. So I need you to see this, church. It's Mark chapter 12. Because Jesus is living a truth with his answer. In Mark chapter 12, look look with me if you would. Mark chapter 12, verse 32. So the scribe says to him, says to Jesus, Well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth. For there's one God and there's no other but he. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your soul and with all your strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. I love this. Jesus is expressing the truth of love your neighbor as yourself in the midst of his answer. 
You remember, these guys made a plan. These guys had a plot. They wanted to destroy Jesus. They were his enemies. And while they were trying to get him, Jesus was trying to get them. And he says to the guy, you're not far from the kingdom. Are you there today? You come to church, you may have been here for 35 years. You're not far, but there's a problem with that statement. You're still not in. You're not far. And he loved this guy. And he's trying to encourage this little mustard seed of faith. And he says, you're not far. You hear the word. You know there's a God. You even know there's a Jesus. You've you've grown up in church. But you've never received and lived in the newness of life. You say, you believe in the resurrection, but you're still struggling with sin. You're not far, but you're not in. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, it amazes me that in the midst of this question, as they're trying to destroy your son, Jesus, you take this moment, you turn it on. How marvelous is this? You turn this moment with wise words. Instead of creating enemies, you're trying to get your enemy. Instead of bringing division, you were speaking to his heart. Forgive the church, Lord. For so often, our piety has given us a pride where we want to humble ourselves before you and say, use us in this world. I pray even now that you would use us in this moment. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.